You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the case of Katie Palmer. This case is unlike any other I've discussed on this show so far. On April 21st, 2020, Katie and her husband John were struck by a motorist named Corey Foster. They both sustained some horrible injuries, and unfortunately, Katie ended up passing away early the next morning. At the scene, an officer with known ties to Corey Foster stated several times that he could smell alcohol on him. Corey denied drinking that morning and passed a field sobriety test. However, he did have alcohol in his system and did admit that he was not able to see out of his windshield when he struck John and Katie, adding that he should not have been driving. It's been almost two years and Corey Foster has faced no legal consequences for his actions. I was first introduced to Katie's case by Eric Carter Londine over at the True Consequences podcast. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, that name should sound familiar to you. I actually covered Eric's brother, Jacob Londine's case earlier this year. Eric is an amazing brother, advocate, and content creator. If you love what I do here, I really think you would enjoy his content, so definitely go check him out. Now, as life would have it, Katie's case was brought to my attention around the same time I discovered another case involving a person who was struck and killed by a motorist. Because I feel this issue is so different than most of the other cases I discuss, I will be releasing that episode later this week. So look out for a bonus episode in your feed. I really hope that by presenting them in the same week, I can shed light on some larger issues surrounding these types of accidents. Now, before I discuss Katie's case, I want to define manslaughter for you. According to the Legal Information Institute at Cornell University, quote, manslaughter is defined as the act of killing another human being in a way that is less culpable than murder. Under both the common law and the Pennsylvania method of differentiating degrees of murder, manslaughter was divided into voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. Voluntary manslaughter is intentionally killing another person in the heat of passion and in response to adequate provocation. Involuntary manslaughter is negligently causing the death of another person, end quote. Now, stick with me here. I want to go just a little bit further and look at what defines negligence. They define negligence as, quote, a failure to behave with the level of care that someone of ordinary prudence would have exercised under the same circumstances. 
The behavior usually consists of actions, but can also consist of omissions when there is some duty to act, end quote. Now, these are just brief definitions. There are a lot of nuances to these that could probably be an entire podcast on its own. And as you guys know, I am not a lawyer. I just want you to keep these definitions in mind as I go through Katie's case. But without any further introduction, this is the case of Katie Palmer. This episode of Voices for Justice is sponsored by ZocDoc. If you guys have been following my journey on social media, you know that I am in my Sarah era. After everything I've been through over the last couple years, I'm really just focusing on myself and doing that unapologetically. So I have become that one friend in my friend group that loves to treat myself. A lot of the time that looks like a long bath, a face mask, maybe a special foot soak, but I also knew that I needed to make my health a priority. And that's where ZocDoc comes in. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. What I really liked is that all the doctors have verified reviews from actual real patients. You don't have to just guess if they're good. ZocDoc is how I found my new doctor. Go to ZocDoc.com justice and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc.com justice. ZocDoc.com justice. Katie Aaron Palmer was born on May 3rd, 1981. She grew up in Denison, Texas. By all accounts, she was adored. She did well in school and was an amazing athlete. Katie would later attend Austin College, where she would meet her future husband, John Palmer. They were married for 16 years and had two children, Bella and Brandon. John Palmer was kind enough to join me for this episode to help tell Katie's story. So here is John explaining a bit more about how he and Katie met and how they ended up back in Katie's hometown of Denison, Texas at the time of her death. So we live in Denison, Texas. Um, that's where Katie's from. We met at a college, uh, the next town south, Austin College. Um, we decided, well, <laughs> she decided that we, we would move here. Um, there's a funny story behind that. I was deployed to Japan, and she had called me to let me know that um, she had bought a house in Denison. And, um, you know, she had said that we had bought a house. And I was like, we? She said, yep. Um, you know, I was in for four years, and I was deployed for two out of the four years. And uh, she said that she wanted to move back closer to her mom. We were stationed in Gulfport. Mississippi, which is a long drive away from Denison, Texas. And um, she told me that she, she bought a house in Denison, and that's where we, we were moving. Um, when I got out, and I thought we were going to go back to Dallas, where I was from. Um, but um, she had made that, that decision, and um, it's a great decision. I, I love this, this town. I love the people. Um, we moved here. In 2008, after I got out of the military, um, her mom lives here, Rhonda Nail. I'm sure you've seen her on some of the Facebook posts. Uh, she's been on some of the news clips. Um, her dad, Tony, lives in Caney, Oklahoma, which is about an hour north. Um, 
We have two children, Bella and Brandon. Uh, Bella's a sophomore and Brandon's in seventh grade. Uh, so Katie's got a large family. Family was very important to her. Uh, she loved being around them. And that is a reason why she decided that we would move back to Denison, Texas. Oh, man, if, if, if you had ever met, met her, um, you, I don't think there was a person that could tell her what to do. And uh, when, when she told me that she had bought a house here, it's just like, really? Uh, you know, again, I thought we were going to move back to Dallas. And she informed me that, you know, she had been away from her family for long enough and she was moving back to Denison. And I mean, how, how can you argue with that? You know, um, I thought it was great. You know, I'm, and it just made me love her more. The fact that she loved her family so much and she put, she put family above everything else, even sometimes uh, before her own needs. Katie was, she was a mother, a daughter, a wife, a cousin, a sister, a friend, and a teacher. Um, she loved her kids. She loved her mom and dad. Her mom, Rhonda, was her best friend. Like I said before, she put family first always. She loved teaching. She cared for her students. Um, she appreciated nature and science. She loved the outdoors. She hated staying home and always wanted to be out doing something, anything. She could not stay indoors. Um, she had a loud, infectious laugh that suited her. Sarah, she, she had a big heart and an even bigger soul, beautiful soul. She was my soulmate. Katie was obviously very important to her family. You can just hear it in John's voice how much he loved her. But Katie was also a very valued member of the community, especially in her position as a science teacher at Scott Middle School. She instituted a STEM program at Scott Middle School. I think she got more out of teaching and learning. Um, man, I really want to put this the right way. Um, kids go to school and it's almost like, like a chore that they have to go. Um, Katie loved it. She loved teaching science because she, she learned something new each day also. She loved her students. Uh, again, she instituted a STEM program. Uh, at Scott Middle School for Denison ISD, uh, which was a robotics club. She took them to competitions. Uh, she took them to two competitions in Dallas. They did very well. Um, she even got to take our daughter, Bella, uh, to a robotics competition. She, she got to teach our, our daughter. She would have taught Brandon this year. Um, but yeah, I know she really enjoyed it. The students, um, she grew real close to, to them and she was a kind of teacher that again, enjoyed the learning aspect, 
but enjoyed the students more. She really got to know her students. She created close bonds with them. Um, I believe those those are the kind of teachers that that make a difference. Not not only the the teachers that um, help you learn as a student, but help you grow as a person. Uh, I think she had a very positive impact on every kid that was in her, her class. I've told this story before. We took um, 16 eighth graders to California through a STEM program where we started in Northern California and worked our way down to Southern California. Started in San Francisco, ended up in Los Angeles. Um, and it was all science and nature-based. And um, I think Katie had more fun than all those kids combined. She really enjoyed what, what she, she did. Uh, man, there, there was one time, you know, again, she cared about the students. We were at a seventh grade soccer game. And it was 40 degrees if it was not a degree colder. And it was raining. Cold and raining. And I obviously did not have a kid playing. And we showed up. It was raining. I was like, we've got to go. It is, you know, it's freezing. It's raining. It's dark. Let's go. And she told me, she goes, no, I'm not going because, uh, you know, first of all, these kids asked me to come. And secondly, some of these kids don't have somebody coming to watch them. So that always stuck, stuck with me. Um, she had a big heart, big heart. Yeah. I think that that really, really shines through. And I'm sorry. I know that you're, you're asked these same questions all the time. And I, I know that these interviews aren't easy, so I really do appreciate you giving more me more context. Um, and I do want to ask you just about the day of. I don't normally ask this question, but like I said, I, I feel like there aren't a ton of formal sources out there for me to be able to put it together myself. And yes, I think that the audience would benefit a lot from, <clears throat> from you telling the story directly since you were there. And if sure. if you don't want to tell it, John, that's no, totally that's fine. fine. This is this is why we're doing doing this. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so do you just want, want me to start from the beginning? I'd be more than happy to do that. Yeah, that would be great. Okay. I had gotten up before Katie. Uh, I had gone out to the backyard, um, worked out. And the night before we talked and she asked me if I was getting up early and I told her that I was, I was going to work out and probably go walk. And she asked me to, to wake her up also. And I remember just rolling my eyes going, yeah, right. She goes, no, this time I'll, I'll get up and I'll go walk with you. Sarah, she never got up in the morning to go walk. Just not something that she did. So I said, okay, yeah, sure, you know, I'll, I'll wake you up. So I went out back, I worked out, and it was around, I remember being about 7.15, 7, I sent her a text message and asked her if she wanted to go work out, pardon me, go walk, and I didn't get a reply. And I remember thinking, yep, She's, she's not coming. I walked inside the house and woke her up and said, Hey, I'm going to go walk. Let's go. And she gave me the typical response that she always did. No, I'm not going. I'm going to go back to sleep. And I told her, I said, Hey, let's go. You told me you were going to go. 
And she said, okay. And she got right up. Um, she got dressed and we went for a walk. Um, I had woke up my son beforehand and told him that we were going to go for a walk and he would actually sometimes come walk with me in the morning. Um, very thankful that he didn't. So he went back to bed and Katie and I left. Uh, we live on Glenwood Drive. And we set out to go walk towards, there's a golf course, um, you know, a tenth or two tenths of a mile uh, west of our house. So we started to walk towards the golf course. And when we got there, there was dew on the ground. And she looked at it and said she didn't want to walk on the golf course because, and this was at the, <clears throat> at the beginning of the height of COVID, uh, where teachers were not going in to teach. They had online classes for their students. So she told me that, well, I don't really want to go walk on the golf course because, uh, you know, her, her shins and calves are going to get wet. And it was, at that point, 7.30, 7.40 in the morning. She was going to go back to bed and sleep for a little bit uh, because she didn't have to teach class till later in the day, later in the morning. So I said, okay. So we kept on walking um, west on Glenwood, and she told me that there was uh, an area on some undeveloped lots in a little subdivision um, where some killdeer were nesting. And killdeer was one of her favorite birds. Um, she studied ornithology in college and loved killdeer. And so we went towards this subdivision, which was called, I believe it's a, a golf walk circle. So we walked up to golf walk circle, looked out over the undeveloped lots and didn't see any killdeer at all. And uh, I said, hey, do you want to go look? See if we can, you know, get a get a closer look. See if see if we can see any. She said, "No, let's go ahead and go 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 ahead and turn back." So we turned and uh, started walking east on Glenwood Drive, and kept walking. And Sarah, I've I've thought about this numerous times about, you know, that's that's the last conversation I remember having with Katie. Was about those birds. Um, and so we continued to walk east, and we were <clears throat> approximately, oh man, maybe two tenths of a mile from our house. And I remember Katie, we were walking alongside the road. Katie was a little bit more to my right. Uh, she was a little bit more, she was closer to the road. Um, we didn't even hear the truck.
I remember her looking over her left shoulder. This is just, just like a memory that comes back. Remember her looking over her shoulder, her left shoulder, and she had a smile. She said something. She had a smile. The next thing I know, <clears throat> I'm flying through the air, and I must have been going about the same speed as Corey Foster's truck. Um, because I remember out of the corner of my eye seeing that silver truck. We were going about the same speed. And then I hit the ground and rolled. And never lost consciousness. When I came to it, I got on my, my hands and knees. I tried to stand up, but it felt like there was a ratchet that was around my midsection, just getting tighter and tighter and tighter. Um, I couldn't stand up. I couldn't walk. I heard I looked over at Katie and she was propped up on her left shoulder. Pardon me, her left elbow facing me but looking over me like she was looking past me and she let out this, this moan. And, um, it's just, a had pain in it and I couldn't get up and walk over. So I crawled over to her. And about that time, I laid her down on her back, and about that time, I could hear Corey Foster yelling. It was either right as I saw Katie or right as I was crawl crawling over to her. Um, I heard Corey Foster say something to the effect of, Oh, my God, I didn't know it was you, John. I'm sorry. I couldn't see. I was trying to clear off my windshield and remember seeing him making a movement with his hand. Um, I got over to Katie, laid her down on her back, and the first thing I noticed was that she wasn't breathing at all. And I begged for her to breathe, begged, and it seemed, it seemed like forever. But I'm sure it was only 10, 15 seconds, and she let out this gasp. It was, she was, she, she had labored breathing, and she started to breathe about every 10 to 15 seconds. And at that time, another neighbor had stopped and had come down and was sitting at Katie's head, and I was laid right next to her, probably my, my head at her, her waist, and I was staring at Katie the whole time.
And um, then I noticed that she wasn't blinking and her eyes were fixed and she was staring straight up at the sky. She had <clears throat> these short, shallow labored breaths but every 10 to 15 seconds and she was staring straight up at the sky. Um, I tried to get her to close her eyes and open them back up, but, you know, I kept on trying to close her, her eyelids with my hands, thinking that maybe, I don't know, that she would start blinking and everything would be okay. And I begged her to not go. Begged her to not leave us. That she had to be strong and uh, be here with us. Be here with the kids and I. Um, that, that went on for less than 10 minutes. Um, fire department and, uh, EMT showed up and they started immediately working on Katie. And, um, they had asked me if I had been hit and I told them that I had, they, put Katie on a gurney. I, I remember that. They put me on a gurney. Um, those EMTs seemed like they were very mechanical and methodical. And they were trying to take care of her the best that they possibly could. And I got loaded up into an ambulance and, uh, That's the last time I saw Katie that, that day. John was taken to the local ICU for his injuries, while Katie was taken in a helicopter to Plano, Texas. Katie's mother, unsure if her daughter and son-in-law were still alive, rushed to the Palmer home to take care of their children, Bella and Brandon. Unfortunately, the doctors were not able to save Katie. She was pronounced dead at 1 a.m. on the morning of April 22, 2020. While her children were saying goodbye to their mother, John laid in the ICU an hour away from his wife and children. I just I couldn't imagine going to bed as a kid and waking up to your grandmother running into the house stating that, you know, your, your mom and dad got hit and... Um, you don't know if they're alive or dead. Sarah, when that happened, Brandon started crying. And my daughter ran from her room into our room, yelling for her mom. And um, not being there for him when, uh, they had to go to 
the trauma hospital in Plano and say goodbye to their mom not being able to be be there with them was uh, probably probably the most difficult thing that I had had to do was to be in Denison in the ICU and not with my, my kids when they were saying goodbye to their mom, not being able to be a dad, to be there to console them. Obviously what happened was tragic, but in my opinion, it was also 100% avoidable. So let's talk about that. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by Quince. The weather is getting warmer, which means it's time to put away all the sweaters and pants and say hello to shorts and t-shirts. I absolutely was looking to update my wardrobe without spending a fortune, and I went right back to Quince for that. I personally don't love trendy clothes that I have to replace every few months. I am looking to build my solid core collection of essentials, and with the huge selection at Quince, I can do that. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses and shorts from 30 bucks, washable silk tops, they have jewelry, and so much more. One thing I really love about Quince too is that they only work with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. And they only use premium fabrics and finishes, so you're not cutting any corners when it comes to quality. I've really been trying to play with pairing casual with more upscale pieces. So recently I just matched a silk skirt with this black tee that I just love and fits really, really well. I think it came together pretty cute. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com justice for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's quince.com justice to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com justice. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. I've watched all the body cam footage that's been released. However, there was a helicopter on the scene, so the audio is pretty painful to listen to. So although you guys know how I love to incorporate real audio and let you judge for yourselves, I'm just going to have to break it down for you. This footage comes from the body cam of Officer Tarif Al-Khatib. Now, before I go any further, I think it's important to disclose the connection this officer had to Corey Foster. 
to be fair, Al-Khatib says he only knows of Corey Foster in the video. And he also alludes to the fact that he didn't know where Corey lived before this. As far as I know, it does not seem like Al-Khatib and Corey Foster were really good friends. However, Al-Khatib's wife and Corey Foster's wife appeared to know each other well. They worked together at one point and have been pictured together several times at a variety of social gatherings. At the end of the day, Officer Al-Khatib at the very least knew Corey Foster was the husband of his wife's friend. When Officer Al-Khatib approaches Corey, he just kind of asks what happened. Corey admits that he could not see out of his windshield. He also clearly states that he should not have been driving. He says at first he thought he hit a telephone pole and adds that he never saw them walking on the road. Then Officer Al-Khatib says, quote, I can smell alcohol coming from you, end quote. Corey Foster explains that he did drink whiskey the night before, but says he did not consume any alcohol that morning. But Officer Al-Khatib presses him again, saying, quote, I'm smelling it pretty strong coming from your breath today, end quote. Corey Foster then explains how he called 911 and stayed at the scene. The officer then proceeds to have Corey Foster perform a series of field sobriety tests. First, he asks him to follow his fingers with just his eyes. Now, you can't see Corey's eyes in the video, but Al-Khatib gives him feedback, saying that Corey's doing good. Then, Al-Khatib explains that he wants to do a few more tests, and says to Corey that he's doing this to help him, quote, to protect you too, end quote. He says he wants Corey to be able to say that he was not intoxicated. He then asks Corey to walk heel-to-toe, turn around, and then walk heel-to-toe back. From what I saw, it appears he had no issues completing this task. Al-Khatib then asks Corey to stand on one foot and count to 30. It's hard to see Corey in this shot, he's kind of out of the frame. But Corey is pretty shaky, and only gets to 19 before putting his foot down. After this, Corey just kind of laughs and says that his work boots aren't level. Al-Khatib responds by saying he understands and will keep all of that in consideration. Fifty minutes after Katie and John were hit by Corey, they then administer a breathalyzer test. And Al-Khatib asks Corey again when the last time he drank was. Corey again says that he stopped drinking the night before between 7 and 9 p.m. He isn't really sure. Al-Khatib responds by saying Corey must have drank a lot because although he's under the limit, it's still going up. Now, this part is a little confusing to me. Later in the video, Al-Khatib will tell another officer that the first two times Corey blew into the breathalyzer, it registered zero. And then finally, a .06. So I can't really tie this comment about his alcohol levels going up to anything I saw or read when researching this case. But Corey does blow a .06, clearly registering alcohol in his system. However, that is still under the .08 legal limit in Texas. From here, Al-Khatib asks Corey to wait, and explains that he might have to hold his truck for the investigation. Al-Khatib then walks away from Corey and speaks with some other officers, and it appears that he takes a call. He alludes that Corey passed the field sobriety test, saying, quote, he did really good on everything, end quote but he also reiterates that he could smell alcohol when he walked up to Corey. Here, he says that he just knows of Corey Foster, because his wife and Corey's wife worked together. After this call, Al-Khatib announces that they are towing Corey's truck. 
Then another officer approaches Al-Khatib and asks if they are going to take blood. Al-Khatib says no. According to John, Al-Khatib will later tell him that he was doing John a favor by not taking Corey's blood that day. And Tarif told me two or three days later, I remember being at home, and uh, Sarah, this is how naive I am. I mean, I, I, I don't come into contact with law enforcement. Um, I usually try, try to follow the rules. He told me that it was a good thing that they didn't do a blood test. Uh, he goes, no, man, we, we got him with the breathalyzer with the .06. He goes, man, if we had um, if we had taken him to go get his blood drawn, then it probably would have dropped down to, you know, a, a .03, .02, and you would have been stuck with that. And I remember thanking him. I was like, well, man, I, man, I appreciate it. You know, thanks for, thanks for doing everything. And he, you know, said, oh, I'm just, you know, trying to try to look out for, you know, for what's, what's right. Well, that was a huge lie. I mean, you get a bloodline, pardon me, you get a blood test and you get that baseline at that time. And then I'm, then you get a toxicologist and they, they can tell you, hey, at the point of impact, you know, at that time, he was a .085. Legally, he would have been intoxicated. But PBTs are not admissible in court. They're not. Blood tests are. That blood test would have shown everything else in his blood as well. You know, the day before was 420. Um, he could have imbibed in other substances the day before or the morning of. But again, we'll never know. Now, again, this is something that really got me, you guys. Al-Khatib says in his body cam footage that he wasn't sure Corey stopped drinking as early as he says he did the night before. According to an article published by the Cleveland Clinic the same month this episode was recorded, a blood test can measure alcohol levels up to 12 hours after it's consumed. This is around 9 a.m. in the morning now. So between being really close to that 12-hour mark and Officer Al-Khatib just not believing that Corey stopped drinking when he said he did due to the strong smell of alcohol coming from him, I will just never understand this justification for not doing a blood test. As always, if you think I'm missing something, please educate me. But from my research, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. From here, the officers away from Corey discuss the condition of the truck and take some pictures. However, I would like to note here that these pictures that were taken were not complete. In fact, according to John, the DA would ask for his pictures that were taken on the next day. However, they do take some pictures. They also discuss how a neighbor explained that Corey drank a lot. That on a Sunday morning at 10 a.m., you'd see him with a beer in his hand. Al-Khatib then walks back to Corey and explains that his truck is being taken, but it might be given back to him as early as the same evening. They ask Corey if he needs anything from the vehicle. At this point, Corey volunteers that he does have two loaded pistols in the truck, and Officer Al-Khatib allows Corey to remove them. Corey grabs them and unloads them on the driver's seat with his back turned to the officer's. Then they document the guns, and Corey later takes them home with him. 
I'm sorry, you guys. I have to stop again because I don't know what the protocol is here, but this officer seems really comfortable in letting Corey handle these guns with his back turned to him. It's almost like there's an automatic trust there, like maybe they really do know each other. Now, maybe some cops are just like this, but this interaction is just really laid back especially since Al-Khatib kept pressing so many times that he smelt like alcohol. I've just never seen a cop this trusting with a practical stranger that has alcohol in their system handling firearms with his back turned to them. But after this, they just kind of joke and laugh about how the guns are Glocks. Al-Khatib says he's going to grab Corey's number so he can let him know when he can get his truck back. Corey reiterates that he just couldn't see John and Katie. And Al-Khatib says, well, yeah, the sun was in your face. Corey starts going into some more detail about the fog, and then they pretty much just start making small talk about his house after that. Corey explains that his mom could give him a ride home, and Al-Khatib says, quote, tell your mom everything's okay, end quote. I mean, he's not wrong. Everything was fine for Corey Foster, while Katie Palmer was fighting for her life. I've had my fair share of interactions with police, traffic stops, Alyssa's case, and everything in between. I don't think I've ever been soothed and ensured that everything would be okay in the way that Al-Khatib did for Corey Foster in this video. Near the end of the video, Al-Khatib is on the phone again. By this time, the helicopter was gone, and Katie was well on her way to the hospital in Plano. The audio here is much more clear, so I'm going to play you a clip of Al-Khatib giving a brief summary of what occurred. Now, there was some medical information and bad beeping noises in the audio that I've taken out, so it might sound a little fragmented at those parts. But I promise I'm not omitting important information. I'm just trying to save your ears and be sensitive to irrelevant personal medical information. Hey, <clears throat> is there anything else you want me to do before I let this guy go? I, we, we've inventoried the truck, the stuff that he got out of it, inventoried it. Uh, I let him get a couple, there was a couple guns in there, so I let him get those out. And, uh, and stuff. I mean, everything was recorded, you know, when we were talking. But I mean, he flat out says, he goes, I can't, I couldn't see, which, I, when I leave my house, I drive directly to the east, and it was prior to where this crash happened, or after. And yeah, I couldn't see, I couldn't even see the road because I couldn't get the fog off my windshield. And then the sun, driving into the sun, you know, I mean, I get it, he was blind, but I mean, he's on the wrong side of the road, too, you know. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's it. I can't believe he was that high at, still today. He said, he's like, man, I quit drinking like at 8 o'clock last night, which I'm not really buying that to be that, you know, at this time of day. But, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Drinking whiskey. So... All right. Yeah. 
Uh-huh. Okay, well, they're going to hold the vehicle until we're ready, until I'll try to keep up with her, and once we see, hey, she's out of the clear, we'll go ahead and... Or we can go ahead and do whatever we need to do tomorrow on it, you know, or whatever. So. Yeah, yeah. She just whacked her head real good because there's hair and stuff on top of the hood. And... Oh, I know, and it's, I'm saying it's an F-250, you know. He didn't say. He just said, I, I could not see at all. He's like, I, I really couldn't. He goes, I, I probably should have just stopped. But, but see, he comes over this hill about probably 200 feet or so to the west. And when he comes over that hill, boom, then the sun's really in his eyes. And that's about where they were. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. And that's what, you know, they were walking against traffic and everything. So. Yeah. Okay. All right, bye. After this, Alkatib gives Corey a ride home in his cruiser. Without instruction, Corey Foster hops in the front passenger seat. Al-Khatib jumps in the driver's seat, turns off his body camera, and the video ends. Obviously, there's a lot to break down here. John and Katie were walking, facing oncoming traffic, when Corey Foster crossed to the left side of the road and hit them from behind. They fly approximately 70 feet, being literally knocked out of their shoes. Corey comes to a rolling stop and no crash registered on his vehicle. Corey calls 911, officers arrive, and we know how that went. Officer Al-Khatib did put together a crash investigation report. This, of course, goes over many logistics of what happened that day. But I want to point out some things I found interesting. During a brief overview of events, Al-Khatib states that sobriety tests confirmed Corey was not intoxicated, but adds, quote, it is this investigator's opinion that alcohol may or may not have contributed to the crash, with the leading factors being impaired invisibility and driving on the wrong side of the road. End quote. One discrepancy I found in the report is that Alkatib says that during the one leg stand test, Corey put his foot down at 27 seconds, not at 19 as I observed in the video. Near the end of the report, Alkatib is writing his synopsis and states, quote, I believe that Foster was negligent by continuing to drive down the road when he realized he couldn't see anything through his windshield. With the weather conditions being foggy, as well as the sun rising glaring through the fog, along with the windshield being covered in condensation, I believe a prudent person should have stopped to clear the windshield before continuing down the road. Taking these factors into consideration and knowing that Foster continued driving blindly down the road regardless of what he was approaching, or what could have been approaching him, I believe this shows clear negligence on his part. This negligence eventually led to the death of Katie Palmer and the injuries to her husband, John Palmer, end quote. I mean, to me, it really seemed like this was clear-cut. 
Although Corey was under the legal limit, he clearly had alcohol in his system that could have contributed to this accident. He also openly admitted that he could not see while he was driving. It seemed like justice was inevitable. But as we know, there has been no justice. On August 19th, 2020, the case against Corey Foster for charges of manslaughter or criminal negligence was presented to a grand jury by Grayson County First Assistant District Attorney Carrie Ashmore. The grand jury consisted of 10 people, instead of the normal 12 that are typically required in the state of Texas. They need nine of these jurors to agree that there is probable cause to move forward with a trial. The presentation lasted for three hours. After one hour of deliberation, the jury declined to move forward with charges. On August 23rd, the Sunday after the case was presented to the grand jury, a pool party was held at Carrie Ashmore's house. In a picture posted to social media, you can see Carrie Ashmore, another assistant DA, Nathan Young, and a member of that grand jury together at the party. In relation to the grand jury, Carrie Ashmore told the media, quote, the grand jury was provided all the information we had during three hours of testimony, including testimony from the expert we hired, and deliberated for an hour. They obviously worked hard on this case and struggled with the decision of whether the facts rose to the level of criminal negligence. That is an enormous responsibility. This is a tragic, horrible accident. I cannot imagine the pain John and his family have endured. Our hearts go out to them. End quote. Now, Carrie Ashmore's right. It appears that they did present the grand jury with all the information they had at that time. However, what they didn't present was the third-party crash report that came out just six days later, or Corey Foster's cell phone records, which didn't appear to have even been requested by the DA. John did eventually get those cell phone records, so let's talk about it. According to John, the records he obtained prove that Corey Foster placed a call 31 seconds before calling 911. There was two seconds in between these phone calls, indicating that he was on the phone at the time of the crash. I think the question that is begging to be asked here is why weren't these records requested and presented to the grand jury? This is a case where the DA was trying to prove criminal negligence or manslaughter yet they failed to present evidence to prove or disprove that Corey Foster was on his cell phone at the time of the crash. In my opinion, this alone is reason to represent this case to a grand jury. We are talking about a man who openly admitted that between the sun, the glare, and the fog, he could not see out of his windshield and should not have been driving. Officer Algatib even agreed in his crash report. So why didn't they even check to see if Corey was on the phone while he couldn't see the road, swerved to the left, and hit and killed someone? I believe that Corey Foster, and uh, again, this is, this is my belief, um, he had a cell phone out. He was dialing a number uh, that contributed to him crossing over the roadway. Uh, the other factors being that... Um, believe he was impaired. Um, and he obviously couldn't see out of his windshield. Um, he was dialing that number. And as he was completing the call, that's when he hit us. And he came to a rolling stop. He still had the cell phone in his hand. 
which means if he had the cell phone in his hand and he was cleaning off his windshield, how is he steering the car? He's not. He got out. He saw what happened. He was able to see Katie and I both on the ground. Um, he assessed the situation, made those two statements. Um, at, at that point, Sarah, I was yelling for somebody to call the police. And he had the cell phone in his hand. And he ended the call. The phone rang for 24 seconds. And then a voicemail picked it up for, for five. You know, five seconds is not enough for the voicemail message to read and then to allow anybody to record. Um, so 29 seconds was spent on the phone. He saw what he did. He looked down. He had his phone in his hand. He hit end on the call, hit 911, and then hit send. And it took him two seconds to do that, and then that's when 911 was called. Corey was out in the middle of the road. That's when our neighbor showed up. And um, she stated that Corey was already on the phone when she got there. And then she came directly over to us. So I, I, I don't know what other new evidence we could possibly provide other than the fact that this just bolsters um, our belief that um, Corey Foster acted reckless that, that day. Absolutely. Couldn't see out of his windshield admittedly drove blind for three-tenths of a mile, uh, in my opinion, was impaired either on alcohol or other substances. Uh, and I'm basing this off his behavior uh, from what I watched on that body camera footage. Um, and then also had his phone in his hand and was dialing a number. So... He paid no attention to the roadway at all. John and Katie's mother are still working for justice for Katie and others who might find themselves in similar situations. On September 1st, 2021, Colton's law took effect in the state of Texas. The law is named after Colton Carney, who was hit and killed by a motorist while he was walking to work. Colton's blood was tested for the presence of drugs and alcohol, but the driver's blood was not taken. When John was made aware of this initiative, he and his family rallied hard behind it. Sir, he did such a bad job that we got a law passed. We helped get a law passed to prevent um, what he did from ever happening again. And that's for not asking for blood. Tarif Al-Khatib's actions were spotlighted in the Texas House, in the Texas Senate. And I believe that's a that's a big reason why House Bill 558 um, passed into law. That and the determination of uh, this, this community and our friends and family. On November 3rd, 2021, John Palmer posted an update to the Justice for Katie Palmer Facebook page. Quote, Railroaded. Yesterday at 4.30 p.m., I received a call from the Grayson County Criminal District Attorney's Office. 
and was told that Foster's phone records were going to be presented to a new grand jury. Why was I notified the day before as their office was closing? Yesterday, I asked the DA's office if they were 100% behind this and if they were committed to getting justice for Katie. I was told that my question was insulting. Yesterday, I asked the DA's office for a full grand jury presentation, since this is a new grand jury unfamiliar with my case. My question was ignored, and the grand jury was provided with an abridged synopsis of what happened. No testimony, no experts, no accountability. This morning at 7.55 a.m., I asked to speak with Brett Smith in person at the DA's office to ask questions about this impromptu hearing. Brett Smith never came out to meet with me. I waited for Brett for three hours. The grand jury declined to move forward with the phone records based off of the Grayson County Criminal District Attorney's Office presentation. As I stated in a previous post, if the DA refuses to move forward on indicting Foster based on all the evidence, factors other than justice motivate that office. Brett Smith and the Grayson County Criminal District Attorney's Office failed my family again. Everyone involved with this case should be ashamed. Nothing is going to deter me from fighting for Katie Palmer. Nothing. I won't stop, Brett. Hashtag justice for Katie Palmer. End quote. When Katie's mother questioned this hearing, she says Carrie Ashmore told her, quote, I don't have to explain anything to you, ma'am. I'm damn good at my job. End quote. Like we see so many of these families do, John has begun advocating for causes to make real change in his state. On December 1st, 2021, John announced that he filed a petition and a lawsuit to have a judge in his county removed from office. We lost a rock. We lost Katie. Katie was a wife, a mother, and a daughter. Katie was hit and killed by a reckless and impaired driver with a 30-year record that has never been held accountable. The same can be said for our current county judge, Bill Majors. Judge Majors has a 30-year record that includes multiple DWI arrests, once as a mayor Sherman, and now one as a Grayson County judge and at least two DWI convictions. His latest arrest and conviction for last year, here in this parking lot. The pole that he hit could have been your wife, your mother, or your daughter. It's completely unacceptable. During Bill Major's last DWI arrest, law enforcement found that Majors missed a call from District Attorney Brett Smith, the same DA who failed to get justice for my wife. Appears that Bill Majors reached out to his friend in a last-ditch effort to escape accountability yet again. And once again, Majors received only a slap on the wrist despite his multiple DWI arrests. This slap on the wrist is a slap in the face to my family and other families like ours who have lost a loved one due to reckless and impaired driving. These continued DWI arrests are not acceptable and show a pattern our county deserves better. Our county needs major change, and it needs to start at the top. Since Katie's death, our family has fought for justice for her and has fought for change in Grayson County and statewide. We have made it our mission to hold lifetime drunk drivers accountable and have worked with lawmakers in Austin on these changes. Bill Majors is not the only public official to abuse his office across Texas time and time again 
we see public officials who believe that they are above the law. Fortunately, our lawmakers understand this and made it possible for ordinary citizens like me and you to remove these corrupt officials from office. Which is why today I filed a petition and lawsuit with the district clerk's office under chapter 87 of the state of Texas local government code requesting that Judge Bill Majors be removed from office due to his latest DWI arrest in which he was three times over the limit and for his apparent attempt at obstructing justice by calling his friend, District Attorney Brett Smith, for assistance prior to being arrested for yet another DWI. We all talk about the good old boy system. What that term refers to is when judges, district attorneys, and commissioners are such good friends that they allow each other and those close to them to commit crimes without consequences. This county needs to stop looking the other way when men like majors continually break the law and continue to not be held accountable. Now listen, I believe in second chances. I do. But where do we draw the line? Do we wait until Judge Majors hits somebody instead of a poll? Do we wait until his fifth or sixth DWI? Does Grayson County have a district judge that will grant this petition and enforce the law? But better yet, can District Attorney Brett Smith put aside his friendship and political allegiance to Judge Majors, pick a jury, and take this to trial? Or will he refuse to personally prosecute him the way he did when Majors picked up his latest arrest? This county needs change. This county needs a leader that is fit to lead and one that is not a liability. Bill Majors, it's time for you to step down. Thank you. John has been met with some pretty harsh opposition pretty much throughout his entire journey to seek justice for Katie and now for others. District Attorney Brett Smith asked him to call off his, quote, jihad. And this newest initiative was met with a large scoff, saying it was just a political play. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I think a judge who has multiple arrests for driving under the influence may not be the most unbiased person to preside over those cases. I also just want to mention here that Judge Majors is being represented by two criminal defense attorneys who just happen to be former Grayson County District Attorneys. Activism will never take away the pain that John and his family have suffered, but Katie continues to make a big difference in our world today. In addition to John's initiatives, Katie's heart, liver, lungs, and kidneys were all donated to those in need. And at the end of 2020, the Katie Palmer Project was created by one of John's friends, Dustin Bortsfield. Dustin is a firefighter who hung Christmas lights around his town for extra cash. It started with just putting up John's Christmas lights as a way to ease the pain and stress of his first holiday season without Katie. The project has now expanded to a group of firefighters honoring Katie's life by providing these services to those in need in the area. It may seem small, but something like just hanging Christmas lights for a family going through something horrible can make all the difference. John is now pursuing a civil lawsuit against Corey Foster. He's hoping to obtain new evidence to be able to present the case to another grand jury. That's all we want is justice, and we want closure. 
and we want justice for for Katie. That's what that's that's what we want. Justice for for us, Sarah, is Corey Foster being held accountable for what he did and going to trial in a criminal courtroom. It's for DPS to acknowledge what Tarif Al-Khatib did and didn't do that day was was a complete failure. What Al-Khatib did and didn't do that day was a complete failure. And I don't think Al-Khatib should have a badge. And at, at the least, I don't think he should be in Grayson County or this region. I think he should be gone. I've said this many times before. Um, Katie said that her most important job was being a mom. She was good at it. She was... She was a great mother. Corey Foster, through his reckless actions that day, took Katie away from us. Um, that is something that that wound will never heal. Never. That brings me right to our call to action. John and his family would like the Grayson County District Attorney's Office to move this case to another county or to represent the evidence to a grand jury with all the evidence and experts needed to present it completely. I don't think Corey Foster is an evil person. However, I do think he meets the requirements for negligent manslaughter charges. He clearly stated he could not see out of his windshield and should not have been driving. He decided to continue driving that day, and that resulted in the death of Katie Palmer. To me, it seems clear-cut. So, if you feel that this case needs another look or needs to be moved to another county based on what you heard today, John is asking that you contact the Grayson County District Attorney's Office to politely express your feelings. Their phone number is 903-813-4361. I will also have other ways to contact their office in the episode description and on my website. Now, that was John's call to action for you guys, which I support 100%. Phone calls might feel intimidating, but I can tell you that they are a powerful way in getting these offices to realize that this case isn't going to just go away. My call to action for you guys is to please follow John's Justice for Katie Palmer's accounts on social media. And as always, share the story. John is everywhere, and that support means the world to families fighting for justice. Like everything else, all of those links will be provided for you in the episode description and on my website. And as always, please share Katie's case. Katie Palmer should have celebrated her 40th birthday this year. She never got that school year with her son Brandon to inevitably annoy him as his science teacher. She'll never get to see Bella graduate, and she'll never make it to her 20-year wedding anniversary with John. Please call and please share. No family should have to go through this. 
But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. It really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. Welcome to our secret after show moment that still doesn't have a name. Um, wow, this episode was hard. I'm not gonna lie. It was really, really hard for me to get through. This is uh, post editing Sarah, by the way. Um, so if the audio quality sounds a little bit different, I have opened the door. I've let the dogs in. Um, but I just wanted to come back to you guys. I've, I've gotten so much feedback about these after shows that um, now when I don't do them, I, I feel a little bad. So I wanted to give you guys a little something here and also some context. Um, I've been talking to John Palmer for my goodness, uh, six months. Um, this episode was a long time in the making, as is the episode that will be released later this week. I didn't put a date on it because, honestly, I still have some work to do on it, but it will be out later this week. It's These cases are so hard. They are so hard for me because they're just... It's it's just not the same as, you know, a missing or, you know, outright homicide case, if you will. I'm not trying to downplay Katie's death at all. Um, I think I made it really clear what I thought should happen there and, you know, how crazy it all is, but it's just so different. It It's really different. So I hope that by presenting these cases together, um, we can just look at some larger issues with these accident cases, if you will, because, Honestly, I don't know what the perfect solution is, but there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better way than leaving these families without any type of justice. I mean, my God, I don't even, I don't even think Corey Foster got a ticket for driving on the wrong side of the road. Um, it, it just blows my mind. Um, but yeah, so look out for that second bonus episode, if you will, in this feed. I hate calling it a bonus episode. It makes it sound like so happy and it, it's not. It, these are all really sad. Um, but yeah, also I wanted to let you know that, um, I will be posting my full interview with John Palmer on my Patreon feed. Um, God, I I always hate plugging my Patreon feed, but I'm plugging it. You guys, I have a Patreon feed. It starts at $5 a month and the top tier is 20 or whatever, but, um, we do some cool things over there. Um, and most importantly, it gives me some extra money to, 
fund these cases in ways that I wouldn't be able to otherwise. For example, right now, um, I'm actually working on hopefully getting a few billboards for the Adam Castillo case um, that is local to me here in Arizona. But that poor case, I mean, that case got almost no exposure. And so I just really want to help them. Um, so the funds for that do come from my Patreon. That's how I'm able to buy the, the you know, these families, these things that I do or I want to do. Um, there are some things I've done in the background I haven't discussed. Um, but, you know, when these billboards come out, I, I want to talk about it. I think it's really cool. I love being able to give back and I wouldn't be able to do that without you guys that listen here and my support on Patreon. So again, if you are if you feel so compelled to join, it is only $5 a month. For $5 you get everything. You get all the bonus content. There's nothing held back. The only thing you don't get are like extra mailed goods, stickers and things like that. Um but yeah, it's a great way to support the show and support these families because I really do take pride in uh trying to give back to them. Um I just don't talk about it a lot. So that's why it's here in the after show, but um yeah. I don't know, you guys. Let me know what you think. Let me know if there are any um, better answers you can see to some of these problems in these cases, especially after you listen to number two to this, you know, second bonus episode, if you will. But um, as always, thank you for tolerating me. Um, Marley is looking at me and wants to be fed. Marley is my dog, for those of you who don't know. So um, he is not tolerating me. So thank you for you tolerating me. Um, I love you and I'll talk to you next time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.